Welcome back to Halford and Bruff here, Sportsnet 650, Wednesday edition of the show with Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, and you can get uh, you can get your What We Learned thoughts in now we, uh, ahead of the segment coming up at 8.30. Your chance to have your text read on the radio, although we're going to read some in this segment too, so it's not your only chance, but it's your best chance to have your text read on the radio. Uh, hashtag WWL, what we learned, what you learned in the last 24 hours of sports. Uh, and of course, that also means we have the what we learned jingle coming up at 8.30, which is either a smash hit or a, a bane, <laughs> an absolute nightmare, depending on who you listen to in the inbox. It's in your head one way or another. It's in your head one way or another. People are paying attention. That's what counts, right? <laughs> That's the bar for great music. Um, we were talking about it in the first segment, a little bit with Luke Fox there as well. Uh, you know, playoff formats across sports. And this was prompted by uh, me watching the Jays and the Orioles and thinking about in different formats how different that series would feel. And, you know, we've touched on it a little bit from an NHL perspective. I do want to kind of take the temperature of our listeners and the inbox, though, on what they want to see change, if anything, about the NHL's playoff format. And I know there's this kind of overwhelming, it seems to me at least, when this comes up, of just go back to the old style, get rid of the divisional format, go one to eight in the conference, and leave it at that. Leave it at that. And I I can understand that. I do think going back to the old format would be preferable to what we have now, which kind of tries to shoehorn in these divisional rivalries. It doesn't really work. And then it just doesn't feel the system just doesn't feel rational. And look, maybe fairness is overrated in, in sports, but it doesn't feel fair at a baseline level. Now, having said that, I do think the NHL should at the very least be willing to consider Something like the NBA's play-in format. And I know the pushback, and we heard it from Luke Fox in our last interview, and look, it's a totally fair opinion, is, well, why are we rewarding teams that couldn't even finish in the top eight of their conference? And I think in hockey in particular, there's this idea that 16 is this kind of magic number. It's sacred. If you go anything beyond 16, it's absolutely (laughs) outrageous, absolutely ridiculous. But again, as a percentage... This is the low point the NHL's been in terms of teams making the playoffs in a long, long time. Ever, probably. Right? Like, in the 80s, again, 16 out of 21. Mm -hmm. So it was still the same number. But as a proportion of the league, it was vastly different. Vastly easier to make the playoffs. So it's not as if it's this NHL tradition that only half of the teams in the league can make the playoffs. Quite the opposite. It's, (laughs) It's usually been the other way. That way more than half of the teams can make the playoffs. And I don't think we should go back to those extremes, but my argument for the play-in, because the the immediate pushback you always hear, right, is, well, why are you rewarding the ninth and 10th place team? So let's just say you copied the NBA's model exactly. You wouldn't have to. There are other options. But let's say you copied the NBA's model exactly. So teams 7 through 10 in each conference have this little mini play-in tournament for the final two spots. So two of those teams make it in. 
And the pushback is, well, why are you rewarding the ninth and 10th place teams if you want to be involved in the playoffs, finish in the top eight in your conference? And I can understand that to a certain extent. I think the key is, though, to me, you're not rewarding teams nine and 10 as much as you are punishing teams seven and eight and rewarding the top six in each conference. That's the key for me. I don't see it as a gift to the ninth and 10th place teams. I see it as creating incentive to finish above seventh place, to finish in the top six, right? I don't find the the distinction between finishing seventh in your conference and finishing 10th in your conference that impressive. Like, to me, the seventh place team has not earned this deference. Oh, how could you do this to them? How could you put them in this in this play-in tournament with the ninth and tenth seeds? The, the, the retort that people have about, oh, well, you should have finished in the top eight. Well, if you're the seventh seed, you should have finished in the top six. If you don't like that, finish in the top six. Do better. <laughs> and that's what I like about it is it makes the regular season more meaningful because there is more incentive to finish higher up in the standings. And yes, it would have the benefit that the NHL would like of keeping more teams hanging around. And the downside I see is that, you know, teams would be more able to sell this kind of false hope, right? All of a sudden, if you're the 13th seed at the trade deadline, you say, well, you know, hey, we get the 10th seed and anything can happen, Izzy. We could get in, right? I don't like that part of it. But the part I do like is forcing, is is rewarding the teams that actually finish higher up in the standings, right? Because 7th and 8th, I don't, I don't see why you should be owed immediately a spot into the regular playoffs. Like, that's not that impressive. Finishing 7th and 8th in your conference isn't that impressive. I'm with you there, but you said it. There is this idea that 16 and then conference-wise, 8 is this magic number. And that those are the worthy teams. And we have just decided yep. that in the NHL. And we've, all, we've almost got Whereas to Whereas in basketball, people disrespected the seven and eight That's seeds a good point. anyway. That's a good point. They even just disrespect the five and the six. If you're not in the top yep. four in your conference, it's almost like, oh, you, you, you don't deserve to be here. So seven, it doesn't make as much of a difference. Seven and eight in the NBA, it's like, you're, well, you're going to get swept. Especially eight. It was your, you're almost definitely well, and going that's, to get swept. My, my larger point is the idea, I push back very strongly against the idea that it's a reward against the 9 and 10. Mm -hmm. Because let's say they get through. Let's say there's a play-in tournament, 7, 8, 9, 10. And at the end of that tournament, 9 and 10 get through. If the 1 seed can't beat the 10 seed, that's yeah. on the that's on 100%. the 1 seed. That's not a reward for the 10 seed. That is on the, beat the teams in front of you. That is the one thing that I've never understood with playoff format complaints. Beat the team in front of you. And then if you can't and you want to have a broader discussion about, well, is this sport just inherently random or is the regular season meaningless? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just saw Boston have the best regular season in recent memory. Lose to the eight seed. Yep. Or to the second wild card in this current format. We're like the line being drawn at the eight. I'm with you. The line yeah, being drawn I at the eight versus I 10, I don't get that's because I, I would yeah. argue the same thing. And then, yes, you can sit there and say, well, Florida, they were the president's trophy winners the year before, and they have a mm -hmm. star player in Matthew Kachuk. And if they just had their goaltending figured out, then we could see what happened, which is what happened in the playoffs. But then, even then, you're sort of grasping at straws about your. The relevance of your regular season, to me, like, 
if you have the, that play and one this is one factor that you hear a lot you, you hear the one versus eight a lot and you hear the no expansion mm-hmm. no no expanding the playoffs yep. thing a lot the other thing that you hear is that the hockey playoffs are the most difficult to get through because of injuries and so on and so forth Okay, well, if you force seven and eight to play more games, theoretically, they're going to be more banged up for the series that yep. matter. And then that's where that's where there's there's some dissonance to me between, well, it should be fair, and one, and we've just decided that eight in a conference is fair. So then you get Boston playing Florida, starting at the same point, whereas in this system, and let's just say that. Florida gets through and ends up playing Boston again. I don't know how many games you want for the play, and I don't know if it's a best of three. But in that's from that standpoint, you would have, or if maybe like the way the basketball does it with this yep. kind of round robin thing, or or like an advancing, like seven plays whatever, and they they move on. Yep. That would guarantee at least that Florida would play two games before, before Boston playing series. Boston. Yeah. And if, if hockey is the hardest sport in the history of the world to play and that you have to be the toughest people in the world to survive the playoffs, that provides another advantage to those top teams. And that, the, the big advantage in baseball is you get to set your rotation if you get those buys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Last year, the Blue Jays, it's, oh, Alec Manoa is going to have to pitch in the wildcard series. If they got through, you know, this year, teams would want him to be pitching in the playoffs against them. But last year, he's have, he had an incredible season. Well, you can't, you can't go ace for ace. And those teams that get the buy get to set their rotation. In baseball, that, to me, is by far the most important thing. I know that often what comes back is – uh, when a team, let's say, sweeps the championship series and then has to wait a while to play in the World Series, there's mm-hmm. an argument about, oh, they were off too long, there's rust and things like that. At the begin- I, I, I'm fine to debate that later in the playoffs. At the beginning of the playoffs, the priority is being able to set your rotation because there's no one that can d- determine the outcome of a baseball game more than the starting pitcher. And if you've got a great starting pitcher, you are in a good spot. You can't really do that in hockey. The only thing is, hey, those teams have just played a mini playoff series, which if you listen to hockey fans is like, you know, the brutal the, the, the number one gauntlet. Well, and I do think that's another part of it, right? Is rewarding the top two teams in each conference because they would be playing the teams coming out of this play-in series. And as you say, that's adrenaline and energy that those teams have had to use and potentially getting a little banged up and they're not as rested as the top two seeds and that puts them at a disadvantage. And that's good. They should be at a disadvantage. That like This is what we're talking about, making the regular season matter so that you get real tangible rewards from having a better regular season. I, I all, My key point here, more than anything, is that this idea that 16, 8 per conference, is this gold standard that could never possibly be changed, it's an arbitrary number. And yeah, any number you choose is going to be arbitrary, but so is 16. And we can't be so hung up on rewarding the eighth seed for making it in and pretending like it's this incredible accomplish to, accomplishment to finish in the top half of your conference that we ignore valuing the regular season and valuing the teams that actually perform well and actually separate themselves in the regular season and giving them uh, a reward. Because that, to me, it, you, you deserve so much more 
credit for finishing in the top three, even in the top six, than you do uh, in seven or in places seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, this one comes in, and you know this is the a pretty typical sentiment that we see a lot. But Surya Ryan says, "I'm open to a hybrid one versus eight format, but no play in tournaments." And that's kind of the surprising thing to me is I don't I don't fully understand the strength of the reaction against it, right? Like it's not you can't even possibly consider it. Like it would just it would destroy the integrity of the Stanley Cup playoffs if you went to this play on playoff format. I I don't really understand where that resistance comes from. And look, maybe the NBA model isn't exactly right for the NHL. But I do think it's worth considering how do you reward the truly good teams, the truly elite teams in the regular season, right? If you want the regular season to matter, you should be looking to do that. And how do you make the playoff format more interesting? And I think you have to be willing to consider something other than the standard 16 teams, 16 teams, and that's it. We're not going to talk about anything else uh, to get to accomplish those goals. Yeah, I mean, more text in right here. More teams in less it lessens the value of the regular season. Well, what we're arguing I think it increases is the that value. It, it increases the value at the top end. Yep it it makes those teams that distinguish themselves in the regular season get somewhat of an advantage. You can argue how much that advantage will ultimately help those teams, but it's it's something. It's and it's certainly better than as Luke Fox mentioned in our last interview. This scenario that we have seen for a number of years where there is this setting of Boston, Toronto, and Tampa Bay mm-hmm. all being, all, you know, by points and by underlying metrics, top five teams in the league all have to play some version of each other in the playoffs uh, right away. Um, and I, I, I don't think that – I liked the idea of the divisional format at first, but we've had enough time now to know that it, it, it hasn't made it then. No. It has not made – it has not had the intended effect that the league hoped it would. Well, and Surrey Ryan made a good point earlier too. He says the NHL definitely needs to go back to the one versus eight playoff format. New non-traditional rivalry, rivalries are built in the postseason. We wouldn't have had those great Blackhawks Canucks series under the current format. And I think that's a good point is I don't know that like the NHL playoffs was already producing rivalries. I don't think you needed to try to engineer a new way to do it, right? It was all like good teams would meet in the playoffs for many years in a row or for a series of years close together, right? Like think back to uh, Colorado and Detroit for sure. in the playoffs. You know, that was already happening. We didn't need to tweak it uh, to try to find uh, a new way to do it. Um, this text says, let in nine and ten, one game play in. Well, you'd have to – You'd have to expand have some it. Sort right. of that has to be some mini tournament. Yeah, right. It can't just be between uh, uh, nine and ten. And this seems this text says, uh, why should top teams get more reward than the fact that you get to play weaker teams already? Because I want I want the regular season to matter more. That's that's fundamentally the answer, right? I want more regular season games to have stakes. Right now, it's basically handful of, you know the last six weeks of the season it's a handful of teams clustered around eight and nine maybe four four teams in each in each conference where it really has stakes if you expanded it it wouldn't just be you know it would be the teams trying to make it into 10th it would also be the teams trying to fight to get out of the plan like that would be huge teams five and six would be desperately trying to win games in order to avoid the play-in series. That would give their games in March and April 
way more stakes. Right now, you're kind of coasting, right? If you're locked in to fifth or sixth, you're not going to fall below that. You're not going to climb above that. It's like, well, all right, whatever. I mean, we're not going to have home ice advantage. Who knows who we're playing? It doesn't really matter that much. If you were trying to hold on to sixth place to avoid going into the play-in series, those games would be enormous for you down the stretch. Text in from Teddy from North Burnaby. Uh, the NFL playoff format has the entire series at home. Obviously, it's one game, but it's a massive ad- advantage. NHL should go to 2-2-3 two, two, playoff series, make the lower-level team win two games in the favored building, plus two in their own building. That's much more of an advantage. That's an interesting conversation That's an interesting one, well. for sure. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, and they could tweak that, but that has always been the traditional 2-2-1-1-1. Two, two, one, one, one. Yeah. Again, it's... That's what that's how they do it. But I do think there's that, that I like the idea. And again, and basketball just... went two three two in the finals yep. and went back to two two one one one. Baseball used to do the inverted uh in, in the in the division series mm-hmm. with the two three. Two three, yeah. Two on the road, then three at home. Gotta save on those travel costs. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, Mike and Van says, I also don't like how long how, he, uh, how long this playoff format would put the finals into the summer. I mean, I think you could wrap it up pretty quick, right? It's it's a relatively short round Did you see the schedule here. for the Stanley Cup final this year? It's uh, 19 days <sighs> off between Yeesh. games. Yeah. And this is also something that could be – you could counteract any length you are adding to it by shortening the preseason a little bit, right? Hey – Maybe knock two games off the regular season if you had to do that. I think there are ways around that. Uh, but I, I do. I am sensitive to extending the season too much longer into the summer. Uh, 650, 650 here is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your thoughts coming up uh, on this subject, and uh, we can get back into it later in the show. I did want to mention this, and we've been talking a lot about – Canada soccer this week, obviously, with the Women's World Cup and, you know, the the growing pains on the men's side, uh, the women not being able to build on the momentum uh, of winning the gold medal at the last Olympics. And I, I did want to note that uh, Canada's men's basketball team is starting a training camp right now. The FIBA World Cup is coming up in August. Obviously, big deal, Basketball World Cup, but also it's a chance to qualify for the Paris Olympics next year. And this is a very, very good roster. Actually, very impressive, starting with Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Jamal Murray in the backcourt. I mean, those are two legit star NBA guards that Canada's going to be rolling out as their starting backcourt. But I am definitely in I'll-believe-it-when-I-see-it mode with Canada's men's basketball team. We are – we're in this kind of theoretical – well, not theoretical. It is a golden era – of Canadian basketball talent on the men's side. You just look at the NBA and the number of Canadians that are there. And even, I mean, like Shea Gilgis-Alexander was first team all NBA last year. He was, I think, third or fourth in scoring in the league. That's incredibly difficult to do. And it feels like he's not even on people's radar that much here north of the border. There is all this talent, but they haven't been able to do anything really of significance at the international level. So I love to see that they've got all these stars there and they've got what looks to be probably the best roster they've ever put together. But I'm also a little bit tentative of fully getting on board and having those expectations because all of that talent hasn't amounted to much yet. And we are in kind of this weird spot where I think if you went back two, three years, there was this kind of idea that we were entering a golden age of Canadian excellence in sports other than hockey, right? 
and it would be on the women's side. With the the men's team was kind of exciting, young, up and coming at that point in soccer. You know, there you have this wave of talent uh, in the NBA. Bianca Andreescu wins the U.S. Open. There are all of these really good things happening, and it feels like almost across the board we've kind of stalled out or taken steps back. And I'm really curious to see if these are just growing pains and we will get back on track in basketball and in these other sports, or if the moment where it seemed like it was all on an upward trajectory, if that was the blip, you know what I mean? Was that the outlier? Mm -hmm. We were, we were fooled or is this kind of difficult period? The outlier, is this just a blip before we start going back up on Canada basketball? It's hard not to be pessimistic because it's not like during the last decade, they've had a run where they came really close. It's been all of this buildup and massive disappointment. Disappointment, disappointment after disappointment. Yeah. Just total, total daggers. But what, where you mentioned Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Jamal Murray. Those two guys are coming into the tournament at a higher level than at a, you know, a lot of that hype in the early days yep. was Andrew Wiggins is going to be really good. And he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated in a cover shoot modeled mm-hmm. after Wilt Chamberlain. And that Andrew Wiggins is the future, and Anthony Bennett is the future, and these are the players that are going to lead Canada. And that yes, they also have uh, good role players like Tristan Thompson. Yeah, Jamal Murray's coming off of an NBA championship. Yep, where he was best in some games unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And Shea Gilgis Alexander, to your point, flying under the radar a little bit in Canada. Not among basketball no. heads. I, I, I do People re- know how good this guy is. And if he... So Jamal Murray, this tournament is about cementing that idea, that legacy of, of an incredible year, an incredible season, an incredible comeback story given the injury that he suffered not too long ago and just establishing himself at that top tier. Yep. And for Shea, it is, I can lead my country and then I will go back to Oklahoma City and we are going to finally make that jump because his numbers last year were ridiculous. I don't think people necessarily fully recognize like all NHL teams. We don't, we don't really talk about them a lot. They're not that big a deal. Making first team all NBA is a big, big deal. Like there's only two guard spots. He got one of them. That's incredible. That is so hard to do. And I will say in a tournament setting like this, Having because you're not necessarily you don't have time to you know design a really complicated half court offense. Having a guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander who is an elite shot creator, right? You don't need to run a play for him. You just give him the ball and he's going to find a way to get in the lane, maybe get to the free throw line, or at least create a shot for a teammate. Having an elite shot creator like that who can handle the ball that counts for so much, especially in tournament basketball. Now, having said that, if they have if they go into this tournament with that backcourt and the rest of the roster, and there's a whole bunch of other NBA players, and as you say, role players, and Kelly Olenek is there, and other guys who can play a role for this team. If they go into this tournament with this roster and don't have success and flame out again, you're going to have to start asking some pretty tough questions, I think, about what Canada basketball is doing because the talent is there. There is undeniable talent there. And when you look at any other team other than the Americans, and stack up the Canadian talent with them, there's no reason they shouldn't be competitive with every other team in the world. We have not seen it yet. It has to start now. When there, there's no, yes, I know agreed. Wiggins isn't there, but whatever. Wiggins would be a great player for this team. I understand that. But you have enough talent there that it, the results have to follow at a certain point. Yep, the, the spotlight is on in a way that feels bigger than ever before. Yeah. 
It is, and uh, I'm I'm very curious to see how this team comes together and how this team performs at the FIBA World Cup at the end of August. 650, 650, it's the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, get your thoughts and also hit us up with your what we learned. We will read them at 8.30. Up next, we'll talk a little NFL with Tracy Sandler, covers the 49ers, uh, also runs Fangirl Sports. We'll talk to Tracy about the Niners camp and also the NFC West. That's coming up next here on Halford & Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650 with fill-in host Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We're live from the Kintec studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And make sure to get your What We Learned submissions in so we can read them at 8.30, uh, What We Learned over the last 24 hours in sports. But before that, joining us on the line right now, she covers the 49ers uh, for Fangirl Sports Network. She is Tracy Sandler. Uh, Tracy, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Absolutely. I'm good, thanks. How are you? We're doing very well. And uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're excited that training camps are in full swing around the NFL right now. I'm sure you are as well. So starting with the 49ers, there's lots to get into. Uh, I know one of the big stories, of course, is that star pass rusher Nick Bosa not at camp yet. A, a bit of a contract dispute happening. Is there cause for concern here? Is the team concerned at all that Nick Bosa is not there? The team- the team is not concerned at all. We talked to John Lynch on, on Monday, and he said, he just said there is no concern at all. I actually flat out said to him, do you have any concern that this might get this might not get done? And he said, no, I'm very confident. So the team is not concerned. They're just figuring this out. We're going into, I guess, day nine. It's a player's day off today, but going into day nine of him not being at camp, but they don't seem worried about it. I think if, if there was anybody who you don't have to worry about, it's Nick Bosa in terms of him being in shape. But that being said, he does have to get ready. Everybody needs a little time, a little ramp up to go into the season, even Nick Bosa. But, you know, they it doesn't seem to be something where they're they're worried it's not going to happen, but certainly is taking a little while. A lot of attention on the other side of the ball, specifically the quarterback position. Brock Purdy, obviously, uh, coming off of an injury, so he's getting quite a lot of focus. And then there's just a lot of discussion about Trey Lance and how many reps he's getting. What does that mean for what the 49ers feel about him? Is there a trade market out there for him? What's what's your read on, on what's going on with the quarterbacks at, at Niners camp so far? Well, the thing with the quarterback is Brock Purdy is a starter. They've been pretty clear clear about that. They haven't flat out said Brock Purdy's a starter, but Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch at the owners' meetings in March told us, you know, he, he's the leader in that. He earned that right. He showed that he could be a starter and a successful quarterback in this league, and he was way ahead of schedule on his health, which is great news for Brock and for the 49ers. And so he was way ahead of schedule, and on the days he practices, he gets all of the first-team reps. So 
Brock Purdy is the starter of that, there's no doubt. Now there's a battle for the backup quarterback, and that battle is between Trey Lance and Sam Darnold and Kyle Shanahan. It's been pretty clear since the beginning of camp that it was going to be much like it was in OTAs, that they were going to split those second-team reps and see what they were going to do. So that's really what it is. And then I think Brandon Allen, who right now is their fourth guy, could end up on the practice squad. You know, we'll see what happens. But right now, that's pretty much what it is. Brock Purdy QB1, Trey Lance and Sam Darnold battling out for the backup quarterback. In terms of a trade market, you know, it's hard to tell at the moment. The team, I think, I don't know that they would put it this way, but I think the team has a little bit of PTSD from the huh. NFC Championship game. And even from last season, I mean, they started the year last season. Trey Lance was the starter. He gets hurt very early in week two. Jimmy Garoppolo comes in. He gets hurt. Brock Purdy comes in. He gets hurt in the NFC Championship game. Josh Johnson comes in. He gets a concussion, and now they're out of quarterbacks. So it wouldn't shock me if they kept three quarterbacks on the roster and then had somebody on the practice squad. It also wouldn't shock me if once they made a decision on who their backup was, if there was, they looked to see if there was a trade market for one of the other two guys. But right now, it's very, it's pretty simple to be honest. I don't, there's so much talk about it, but right now it's pretty simple. You have Brock Purdy as the starter and Lance and Darnold battling out for his backup. Yeah, it's not surprising that that Purdy is going to be the starter going into the season, given what he did in the role last year. But you do still have a guy in Trey Lance who obviously very high draft pedigree, you know, high upside with his athleticism, despite the way, you know, the, the, the injury troubles in his career so far. How secure is Brock Purdy's hold on the starting job once we get into the regular season? What would have to happen for there to be any sort of quarterback controversy there? I mean, it's so hard to tell because a million things would have to happen. He'd either have to get hurt, which I'm going to say, God forbid, because you never want that for anybody, or it, he'd have to be terrible. But the reality is he's not going to be terrible. He already proved he's not going to be terrible. You could see in training camp he's not going to be terrible. So I think really it would, it would just be an injury. He is their starting quarterback. Whether, no matter what they have behind them and how much they trade up for Trey Lance and all of that, at the end of the day, Brock Purdy is now their starting quarterback, and so the only thing that takes that away from him is anything that would take it away from any other starting quarterback in the league. A big reason, Tracy, that there is all this conversation about the quarterbacks is that the consensus uh, around the rest of the roster is that it is very good to elite at pretty much every position, and that they, they have built a squad that can compete or should compete at the highest level once again this season. But the last number of years, it's been some stops and starts. It's been losing in the playoffs, losing in the Super Bowl. If the Niners don't break through this year, what, what's at stake for, for the organization? I don't think anything's at stake for the organization. It's exactly as you said, they are certainly built to be an elite contender. There is certainly a lot of talk during camp but about Super Bowl and getting to that last game and winning that last game. I think they have a window, probably another year or two in their Super Bowl window. But at the end of the day, only one team wins it. And three out of the last four years, they've been in the final four. So, And once you get that far, it's just really hard to win it. And once you get that yeah. far, you're you're going up against the best teams in the league. So I think, you know, they've only lost, they've lost the Super Bowl and they've lost in 
the last two NFC Championship games in 2020, they didn't make the playoffs. But that, of course, was such a bizarre year for everybody. But, you know, I think in terms of what's at stake for the organization, I don't think anything's necessarily at stake, but they do have a window. And windows only last so long. And theirs theirs has lasted really a fair amount of time. But contracts are going to start coming up. And they'll be competitive because they're going to have Nick Bosa and they're going to have Brandon Ayuk and they're probably going to have Debo Samuel. I mean, they're going to be a competitive team. You brought pretty so early in his career. So they'll be competitive no matter what. But I would say these next couple of years are the window. You know, who knows how much longer Trent Williams can play or wants to play. Uh, he's been in this league a long time. He's had an incredible career. But, you know, he's in his mid-30s, and that position really takes a toll. Well, any position in football takes a toll on you. But, you know, in your mid-30s, that position really takes a toll. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that there's, like, so much at stake and it's make or break. But this is an important year for this team. This team wants to win a Super Bowl. This team very well could win a Super Bowl, should win a Super Bowl. But I think, again, if they get to where they want to get, you know, at the end of the day, they could, they're going to be facing the Super Bowl. They're probably going to be facing Patrick Mahomes. They're going to be facing Josh Allen. They'll be facing Joe Burrow. And should they get to the NFC Championship game, you could have another rematch with the Eagles. And these are all really good teams. So, but they do want to win a Super Bowl. That's, that's what this season is about. That's what's on everybody's mind. And they've gotten so close and they want to get there. Uh, as a fan of aesthetically pleasing offensive football, I'm always excited to see what Kyle <laughs> Shanahan can drop, and especially with this group of skill position talent he has, which is I mean, it's like, pretty impressive. It's so it's versatile, and there's so, there's unique players. They can do so many different things. And you know, Christian McCaffrey came over. He played 11 games with them, so it's not like he just had a cup of coffee. He was there for a while. Was really <laughs> effective. I am curious, though, now with, you know, a full summer cycle, training camp, all of that, to really integrate and kind of get in the lab and cook some things up. I mean, what's the ceiling for for this offense, and, and how should we expect to see uh, Kirsten McCaffrey maybe even be more effective in Kyle Shanahan's offense? Well, I think for people like you, I really like the term aesthetically pleasing about the offense. For people who are, do like an aesthetically pleasing offense, I think it'll be a very exciting season. First of all, you have Debo Samuel, who's come back in incredible shape and who feels like he had, in his words, I would not necessarily agree with this, but in his words, he said he had an awful season last year. He has come back looking to have a very different kind of season. Brandon Ayuk is picking up in training camp, basically where he left off in OTAs and the season. He looks incredible. And as you said, Christian McCaffrey was a full off season. And we haven't even talked about George Kittle. We haven't talked about Kyle Juszczyk. Hopefully a healthy Elijah Mitchell to back up Christian McCaffrey. I think this offense is going to be very exciting and very fun. And I think the other thing with Brock is we've seen that Kyle Shanahan really trust him and trust him to run his offense. And we've seen him be able to run it in a way that maybe has been different the last several years. So I do think it's going to be pretty exciting. I would imagine that Kyle Shanahan is salivating with a very revamped Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey, a Brandon Ayuk. Debo Samuel said in the spring that you couldn't catch Brandon Ayuk in a phone booth right now, and I think that's a very (laughs) good way to put that because he is literally catching everything. He, on any given day in camp, has made every quarterback look so good, and that's nothing to say that the quarterbacks haven't had great days. But you throw it at Brandon Ayuk, 
he's going to figure it out. And it, it's been pretty cool to watch. We touched on the, the quarterback specifically, the backups that are, are, are fighting for that spot. Uh, what, what are the other training camp battles, the position battles that, that stand out at, at Niners camp so far? Well, the things that have been interesting to watch is you have Drake Jackson, who in theory is going to be on the other side of Nick Bosa. That's certainly what the four Niners would like, coming into his second year, and who was a little bit humbled last season. Came in, started out you know, pretty strong, and then was a healthy scratch the last few games. So that was an interesting one to watch in terms of can, can Drake Jackson really elevate himself and rise to where they want him and, and frankly really need him to be because they do need someone – that they could count on, you know, on the other side there of Bosa. Then on the offensive line, you have Colt McKivitz coming in at right tackle, who's going to be replacing Mike McGlinchey. He is the presumptive starter. He's had an interesting few years. He came in as someone they were excited about. He had got, he, he's had a lot of up and down, but he's coming in. I think that one's really important to watch because the offensive line generally is a big one to watch because obviously you have Trent Williams, who we talked about, Colt McKivitt's first year as a starter, and, and how does that go? But you also have Spencer Burford coming into his second year. He surprised a lot of people his rookie year, but they do need him to take it to that next level. Can he do that? Aaron Banks will be in his third year, but his second year as a starter, as somebody who I think surprised us. Kyle Shanahan was pretty clear, and the 49ers were pretty clear on what he could be, but you know, he didn't play at all his rookie, or barely played his rookie year, and he was a uh, second round pick, so there was a lot of conversation around that but they just had other guys on the line that had more experience that offensive line is a pretty important one to watch and then I think the battle for that third linebacker position uh, that was vacated by by Aziz Alshair who went to the Titans where he's going to start and very well should but you obviously have Fred Warner and Drake Greenlaw who is a top linebacker duo in the NFL and one of the tops the 49ers have certainly ever seen but that third linebacker position, will that be the rookie D. Winters? Probably not, but it, it could be uh, Demetrius Flanagan Fowles or Oren Burks. Which one of them steps in and really becomes the guy they need at that third position? And then it's kind of been interesting to watch in the secondary. Obviously, Mooney Ward will be their starting corner, Diamador Lenore on the other side. But uh, we've seen Ambry Thomas really look a lot different than he did last year. So is that a guy that they can count on? As a backup, Isaiah Oliver is probably the starting nickel, but who are the backups there? So I know that I just gave you like 27 position groups, but <laughs> didn't you ask? <laughs> those, those are the things to watch for. Well, we appreciate the depth of it. Uh, look, looking around the division, so, I mean, the Niners, are they're their odds-on favorite, and then really it's the Seahawks after that, and then a big drop-off uh, to the Rams and the Cardinals. How close do you think the top of the division race is going to be between the Niners and the Seahawks this year? Well, the Niners and the Seahawks are so funny because it feels like no matter how much better the other team wins, other team is, it's always close. It's always like a thing. There's always drama. The games are always very exciting. So it always feels like it's close. I think last year was certainly a lot closer than anybody thought it would be, but Right now, it certainly feels like San Francisco, San Francisco should kind of go far and away with it. But how does Geno Smith do in this year? You know, this the second year is in the starter as a starter. How does he do? Jamal Adams will be back for for Seattle. DK, they certainly have DK Metcalf. So I think it just depends how how do all those guys play. I think a lot of it really will be on Geno Smith. I don't think it should be overly close. But again, the Niners and the Seahawks, it's always. The games are close, and the division always seems to be close unless 
there's like a million injuries and someone has gone far and away with it. But I, I do think the Fort Niners should have the division wrapped up, probably similarly to how they had it last year, you know, barring any injuries. I agree with you that the Rams and the Cardinals are, are a big drop-off after those two teams, just as where they are right now. Yeah, I, I would love to see the Niners-Seahawks rivalry get back to where it was uh, a few years ago. And as you say, usually those games are pretty entertaining, even if uh, there's a, a massive talent discrepancy between <laughs> the two teams. Tracy, appreciate the time. Thanks for chatting with us. Enjoy the rest of your day. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You too. That's Thanks, Tracy. Tracy Sandler covering the, covering the San Francisco 49ers, uh, also running the Fangirl Sports Network. Um, yeah, the Niners are going to be a, an interesting team. I, I I did like your question about are there is there a sense of like come on get it done at a certain point here, right? And I I think Tracy's point is valid that if you're consistently making NFC Championship games and the Super Bowl in one case against the Chiefs, not that you're immune to criticism, but you also have to recognize that if you have that track record, you kind of just have to stick with it, and eventually you're going to break through. Or at least that's the hope, right? If you're consistently going that far, it would be one thing if they're winning the division and then not winning playoff games, but they are. Like, Kyle Shannon has shown he can win in the playoffs, right? He can create a game plan that exposes another team's team's flaws and win in the playoffs. It's just getting over that hump. I do wonder if they if they if there's another exit, frustrating exit this year, what happens? But at the same time, I'm not sure you can really justify going away from Kyle Shanahan given the track record he has. Yes, he's he's set a very high bar, but what what it comes down to is they have built a powerhouse team and the questions are all on the quarterback and have yeah. been on the quarterback for a long time, whether it's Jimmy Garoppolo drafting Trey Lance high. Mm-hmm. Now all the focus is on Brock Purdy and that Brock Pur- the 49ers fans, if you talk to them, you get the feeling. And I made this joke last week that they they think he's Tom Brady. They think he's Tom Brady 100%. Because they're buying into the mythology of yep. late pick Mr. Irrelevant. and he's come in and and he won a bunch of games in his first season. He's looked fine. But that is a lot of pressure on a young player who is not coming in with Tons of pedigree. Now, they've got Sam Darnold in the mix, but we've seen him in a couple stops now. Ride the waves, be very inconsistent. If they lose again, we know that this is a quarterback-driven league, that the teams that win the Super Bowl generally have a top-five quarterback, a top-ten quarterback. Mm -hmm. It's an easy enough fix where you have to go out and pay for a big-time quarterback or you have to draft and develop one, which was, I guess, the they thinking tried to do it. with Trey Lance. So they've had some whiffs at the most important position, and it's still been enough for them to be competitive and be a contender. But it's it's funny because it's it's such a double-edged sword where, on one hand, yeah, it's great that you've built this amazing team and that you do have this offensive mind that can build mm-hmm. game plans, but you don't have the kind of the hardest and the easiest thing to figure it's, out. It's kind of incredible that they have the roster they have considering the draft capital they gave up to get Trey Lance, right? And and then taking him at that position when you could have added another stud blue chip player at a different position, but it hasn't hurt them at the rest of the roster. And this text comes in, not wasting $50 million a year on a quarterback is the way to go. This is how they can keep this juggernaut team going forever. Just get a new quarterback every four to five years. The interesting thing about the Niners is in some ways – they're the ultimate team to test that 
that idea. And right now, especially because you got a great defense, you've got a good offensive line, you've got a great group of skill position players, and you have a coaching staff who knows how to get the most out of a quarterback. So theoretically, you're right. In that environment, in theory, it sounds great. In that environment, you in shouldn't the Super need Bowl, a star give me Patrick Mahomes. That's the, and even San Francisco, even the Brain Trust looked at Jimmy Garoppolo and said, "Okay, yeah, we can win a lot of games in the regular season with him, but we need somebody who can be special and who can make plays." That's why they. That was the whole theory of the, the trade. Lance. Trade. Yep. We need a stud who raises our ceiling. I mean, the thought was at a much higher cost, he could be to the 49ers what Russell Wilson was mm-hmm. to those Seahawks. A quarterback that's not making a ton, that's going to be dynamic, and that can play right away. Yeah, that can make plays for you, right? Like Jimmy Garoppolo couldn't make plays. He could execute most of the time in Kyle Shanahan's offense, but he was never going to make something special happen independent of himself. That's what the top quarterbacks do. Mahomes does that. Josh Allen, Hurts, Joe Burrow, go down the list, right? That is what separates the top quarterbacks from the other guys. I, I get what the texture is saying. Like, theoretically, spend all your other resources on the positions that aren't as expensive, build this environment to have success, and then don't worry about the quarterback. Just keep drafting these guys in the late rounds and plug them in. I can understand the theory there. It's just but like again, goaltending. Even the team that was best prepared to do that looked at it and said, ah, actually, you know what? <laughs> we, we need to go get a difference maker. Now, it just so happens that because of injuries, they're right back to plugging in a guy like Brock Purdy. And hey, yep. maybe Purdy is good enough and has just that extra little bit of uh, of ability over Garoppolo or just game-making ability that, that it works for them. But I do think it's striking that even the Niners – and the other example I would point to, right, was is uh, the Rams. We're in a similar situation with Jared Goff where, hey, we've got Sean McVay and we've got this but running attack. But they paid him. They They'd did give pay him. him. A big contract. But then they also decided – well, you know what? We got to go get somebody who raises our ceiling. We yes. got to go get Matthew Stafford. Yep. And they won the Super Bowl as a result of it. Yeah, f- absolutely. And it is it's just a fascinating line. And we, you know, we've seen Kyle Shanahan be the OC for the Matt Ryan mm-hmm. Atlanta team that went to the Super Bowl and then had a second half to what forget. What happened there? Oh yeah. <laughs> Ooh. And Matt Ryan, you know, in his prime, MVP candidate, uh, you know, maybe the peak wasn't it's not like he was a dominant, dominant quarterback for a long time, but he was a steady quarterback for a very oh, long yeah. time. He, he was, was, I guess, similar to Matt Stafford. Yeah, some I, I would say kind of comparable. I think the uh, you know we were talking about the tape guys in, yes. the, in the NFL. I think they would probably have Matt Stafford at his peak above Matt Ryan, just because right? the arm strength, the arm talent. Yeah. yeah, the arm talent, as they like to Take say. Take the top off the defense. Update your spreadsheets. That should be what the you can um, hit that ESPN out, Ocho Microsoft Excel competition should be. It should be like putting putting the Matt staff like a <laughs> Matt's actually, their top ten quarterback. They actually because the what the analytics problem or the, the uh, tape the, guys in there. What the Excel one is going man that now that would be great. Who can cut tape the fastest for uh, for for NFL teams? What the Excel championship is probably it's probably going to be like business like finance guys doing things. They should do it. They should have one that is sports analytics people like whether it's from teams you know like get eric tulski down here get whoever <laughs> like you know sam ventura get the get the hockey guys get the baseball guys do a a sports analytics excel competition that's what i would like to see i don't want to see the finance guys going on going at it it's espn make it about sports br- br- blow our minds with an algorithm that you come up with on the spot that's good. That's good. You know you would watch it. The Kyle Shanahan get Kyle Shanahan. Get in your there. boy Dom Lucision in it. He'd try to. He'd do it, and then, oh, 
I forgot about the quarterback. <laughs> and it's funny, right? Because he he does have he raises the the bar. He raises the ceiling for an average quarterback. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt that's been proven out now over a number of years in this job and then even prior to that when he was an offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. It's just when you get down to it, I I, I have that talent. It's the luxury. Like I I brought, I said I mentioned goaltending. At least with goaltending, when in theory it makes tons of sense to not pay tons of money to one player to carry you, uh, because you can get performances at a high level from players that you're not paying a ton. And with quarterbacks, you just you don't have that luxury. That's why Patrick Mahomes is worth what he's worth. And yes, it makes team building more difficult. But darn, man, when you have that guy in the Super Bowl, it helps. It just makes the difference. <laughs> it really, really does. Uh, six fifty. This person texts in the Microsoft Excel Championship should figure out the CFL stats system. That's very true. <laughs> That's very Get good. this guy. Hey, we need help. We are desperately trying to figure it out up here. Uh, We'd six- like it to update uh, more than once a quarter. <laughs> We're halfway through our season. Do you think we should have stats? Yeah, it seems like a good idea. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Hit us up with your what we learned. That's coming up at 830. First, we will talk to Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times covering the Seattle Mariners, what they did do, what they didn't do at the deadline, and what the future holds for the Mariners. That's next here on Halford & Broff, Sportsnet 650.